Our teaching text today comes from Colossians 1, verse 24, through Colossians 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ is so powerfully working in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Everyone doing okay? Great. Um, as someone who has been, uh, I was forced to as a child, um, but then I chose to later. Um, as someone who's been interacting with the uh, stories in the Bible, in the scriptures, um, in one way or another for most of my life, I'm very, very grateful that um, the scriptures are honest about its heroes. Basically that um, if you get... Uh, one accusation that's difficult to level at the Bible is that it's just giving you a glossy caricature of a life and only telling you about their successes. Um, very grateful for Amanda mentioning Alpha this morning. Um, if I have one critique about the, the Alpha videos, actually, um, it's that all the stories in the Alpha videos kind of bow tie a little too nicely. Um, like everyone's prayer gets ex answered in a dramatic way. Every story is like, I, I was in jail and I was stabbing someone and then Jesus came to me and now I'm like, so great, and I lead a Bible study. Um, and like those are stories we sort of get used to hearing because those are the ones we tell, you know, in, in a conference environment or on a video or something. But like the scriptures are very honest about the highs and lows of people's lives. It doesn't just give you a glossy caricature. And um, I also was glad that Amanda mentioned it because um, in a city like New York, that's a pluralistic city and, and part of its beauty is its pluralism and there's like a, a suspicion around proselytizing and why do you care if somebody believes like you believe? Does that make you think that you're more right or that your team is winning because more people be believe like you believe? And that's not the spirit behind Alpha at all. Like, Actually, the spirit behind Alpha is if you look around at the empty uh, seats in this room right now, like actually maybe do it. Yeah, there are some, right? Like every single one of those, like the ones that are filled are filled with people who are living a real life. 
and that life has highs and lows and has complications and difficulties and opportunities and potentials and beauty and poetry and, and all of it, like a full life. Like you're sitting in one of those chairs, you represent a full life. And the heart behind Alpha, the heart behind inviting someone to church is, is, is not so that they'll like add to our tribe or that we'll be winning or that we'll be seen as a success because this room is full. It's so that someone whose real life would fill this seat could encounter the love of God in a real tangible way. That's literally the whole point, is to pass on what we have received. Many of you would say the, one of the most significant things that's ever happened in your whole life is that you were apprehended by the love of God. The Puritans said, seized by a great affection. Like, that, that just came crashing into your life and changed everything. And there may be someone who's at your work who could sit right here, whose life would need to be absolutely transformed by that same love, like shame lifted, an addiction broken, like healing pouring in, understanding how much they're loved and known by God, like, uh, like a profound, you know, like we believe that gospel heals at every level of relationship for human beings and that there are people who, who are meant to sit in these seats perhaps that, that need to experience that level of healing the way, the way we do, not from a, a place of pride whatsoever, but like God's come crashing into my life and I wanna pass that Along because my life is real, it has highs and lows. Uh, I'm in mourning right now. Yeah, you guys know, right? The Astros beat the Yankees last night. Uh, don't clap for that. No, no, I'm gonna tell you about another church. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, that's 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 only this. I'm only gonna reference that three or four more times in the talk, and that's it though. After that, you know, I'm moving on. I was emotional last night, but I'm, over, I'm overcoming by gospel hope this morning. So, um, but I'm grateful. I've been, you know, digging into this for a long time. I'm grateful for how honest the scripture is about the life of its heroes. And, and especially if you get an extended narrative in, in the scriptures, uh, if you get a, a Moses or a Ruth or a David or a Mary, when you pay attention to the text, you don't just get the sense that they're spinning out the greatest hits. You get their failures, you get their moments of doubt, you get their moments of fear. And that's why when I come across a sentence like the beginning of this text that we had this morning, I, 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 it, it, it seems a little far-fetched. If I'm honest, it seems a little far-fetched to me when I first read it. But because I sort of like lend the scriptures the integrity that they've had up to this point with people's lives... I, I, I want to like explore a little bit more because this sentence uh, is how this, 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 this um, section of Colossians begins. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. Come on. No. No, I don't think so. Like when I read that, as a pastor, even still, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. Sounds like something parents tell kids, like this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Right, and the kids are like, no it isn't. And they're right. It's a part of you, like, when you read that, if you're cruising along and you're really, if you're letting your like, mind and heart and imagination engage with the text, when you hear, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, don't you in a little bit say like, yeah, but do you really rejoice? And what kind of suffering are we talking about here? Like I could understand it if this section started off, I am suffering for you. That's sort of like the spirit of how you, you hear, people say, hear people say things like, do you have any idea how much I have gone through for you? Like this is like a parent to a child or a spouse says this or a friend say this. Do you know how much I've done for you? But he says, I rejoice 
in what I am suffering for you. So if I lend the text the integrity from other sections of the scripture, if this is really a true account, then I need to pay attention to it. I I think it is a true account because in the Apostle Paul's life, we aren't just given the highlights, just like like David or Ruth or, or Mary or David or any of the others. We see him get angry. We see him hold grudges. We, we see him uh, actually have a moment or two where he, he seems to be like acting a little bit racist. We see him feeling insecure. And, and, and like we get this in the guy who wrote half the New Testament. We see him working out these things and, and the gospel coming more and more to, to uh, sort of be laid over his entire heart and his entire life. And so when he says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, I want to say, even though that sounds far-fetched, let me press in a little bit and see how on earth that could be true. Because at least I can pay attention because uh, all of us know what it is to suffer. You know from your, from your experience that life can be difficult and painful. This is a moment where I could mention the Astros-Yankees thing. Again, I'm not. I'm leaving it, leaving that on the table. A lot of the reading I've been doing recently has been, uh, you ever find this happening where you're like, you're getting a bunch of different like streams in your life, but you keep noticing some overlapping threads. Like I'm, I got this from this film and this from this book and this from this conversation. And like, well, like what's going on? Like, like what's, what, what's, what am I meant to be, learn, to be learning here? And a lot of the language I've been coming across has been trying to put an articulation around the pain and the suffering that many of us are experiencing in our cultural moment. Right? Some of the stuff that we're dealing with is obviously not new. There's nothing new under the sun. But the way it is expressed in our particular cultural moment, like uh, there is a, a sort of a refreshment of articulation that sometimes needs to happen to understand our moment in time, our story, our history. I'm, I'm reading a book by David Brooks. Um, he published this summer. It's called The Second Mountain. Uh, and it serves actually as a pretty humble follow-up to his last book. If some of you guys heard about or read The Road to Character, David Brooks said he wrote this Road to Character book, which is a lot of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like here's how you win and achieve in life. And then he said, I went through like my whole life just got dismantled. He said, I went through the most humbling and difficult five years of my life. And so the, the second mountain is like, here's what happens after you come off that mountain and go into the valley and you sort of try to ascend again in a later stage of life. And it's, it's, it's humbling. I'm, I'm really enjoying it so far. But early in the book, he describes these four interrelated social crises um, that we're facing as Americans. And none of them, as I said, are brand new in the world, but I think they, they do sort of like require some some refreshed articulation. And so here's the, Brooks's take on part of our suffering. And, and can I say in any real way that I rejoice in any of the suffering? I'm not sure, but I'll just lay out what he lays out. He says that we're experiencing in our culture a crisis of loneliness. That there's a technological promise out there that we, we, we know to be a little suspicious of that we're going to be as connected as we ever have been. And yet, as connected as we are, there's still a crisis of loneliness going on. And, and this, you've heard this from other, other sources as well, but I was staggered to read it again in print. This is the, 2018 was the third year in a row that the, the uh, span of life for Americans has gone down. You know, the last time that happened, we were in a world war, <laughs> We're sending people off to, to, to the foxholes to die, to die in, 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 a, in a global conflict. And for three years in a row, for the first time since like 1917, the death rate in America, the lifespan is going down. Why? Do you know the reasons? You've heard them. 
deaths of despair. Like making permanent a moment of despair through suicide or the slow motion suicide of death by opioids. Like we're trying to numb ourselves to death and, and we are in a crisis of loneliness that we have to address as, as, as a culture, that we have to, we have to deal with the, the despair that people are coming and saying, I'm not sure I know uh, you know, if life is worth living, I don't feel enough connection to this world and connection to, to my life to, to, to go on. He says we're also in a crisis of distrust. That uh, statistically, Americans trust our social institutions at an all-time low, right? If you use your, uh, your smartphone to check in with headlines in the world, you probably don't need much convincing about this. We are at an all-time low in our confidence in our institutions. We have a crisis of meaning. We have unprecedented options, unprecedented freedom. Some of you will remember a few weeks back we were talking about like having a system for a thriving life and how one big bucket in that system is freedom and another big bucket in that system is meaning and another big bucket in that system is relationships and how in America we are absolutely overflowing with freedom and political freedom is so important. It's literally crucial. It's worth dying and fighting for. But if you have social freedom and freedom of opportunity, but you don't have any meaning and you're really low on relationships, I want to tell you it can feel like you're drowning. It can feel like you have so many options, but you don't know what your freedom is for. That's something profound to wrestle with. Brooks says that we're wrestling with a, a, a crisis of tribalism. Basically, we're an intensely divided and protective of our tribe's, uh, you know, ideology or mentality. So we, we sort of patrol the borderlands where we differ from one another, that we, uh, at a staggering rate, and the internet sort of helps us in this, our social media, we, we, we find this, right? I'm not telling you something you don't know. We label and dismiss one another. You're that, so I don't even have to engage with you. You're not a real person to me because I can apply this label to you. So just think about those four, four, four crises of, of loneliness and distrust and meaning and tribalism. But then let's make it personal for you. What's the last difficult thing that you went through that you would say, I, I was suffering? What category is it in? I was trying to think about this for myself, right? What's, what's the stuff that I'm going through in my life right now that I, I would label, I would put in the category of I'm, su- I'm suffering through this right now? Some of it, I bet you will find, fits in the category of what we'll just call a broken world. Like, whether you're a Christian or an atheist or, or, or you know, on one philosophical end of the spectrum or another, there's something wrong with our world, right? We have death and disease and brokenness. We have insecurity and fear and violence. We, ha- we have these systemic, you know, problems. So some of the pain and suffering that you're dealing with in your life, that I'm dealing with in my life, it's, it's the result of a broken world, whatever a causation you want to assign to that. But it's things like there's illness, there's, there is evil, right? We have to admit that in our, our history, we look around, there is evil. There, there's, there's systems in place that are crushing people. There's violence, there's lack of opportunity, of a place to live, of enough to eat. Some of us know the pain of, the, of a broken world. But you get a little more personal. Many of us know uh, the pain of, of selfishness or the pain of indulgence, right? I call this like 
like sort of like think about the suffering that's like a hangover effect, and I'm not talking about just about consuming too much alcohol, but when you've like acted selfishly or you've acted out of anger or you've acted out of lust, and the suffering that comes in your life because you, you tried to make the world for a little while revolve around you, there's suffering that comes, that comes as a result of that. The, the Bible talks about this idea of sin is whenever you put something in the place where God should be in your life and you try to make that thing an ultimate thing, it could be something that the world labels as good or something that the world labels as evil and broken, but one way or another, it's crushing to your soul. There is like suffering attached to putting something in the place of hope and expectation and worship and longing that actually only God is fit to occupy. Another type of suffering is wounded pride, like a reputation pain, like someone misperceived me or misunderstood me or, or, or labeled me wrong or, 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 or you know, whatever it is. There's just that, that pain of being misunderstood, that pain of, of your pride being hurt. I hope you've been able to call to mind some instance in your life of suffering, probably not that. This is actually not a point people need that much help with. We know what's going on. In any of those instances, would you have been able to say, I rejoice in what I am suffering? Like, really? Not like Hallmark Christianity. Like, could you really say, I rejoice in what I am suffering? I'm, I'm guessing the only way you would be able to do that is if you saw some significant and greater purpose in the suffering, right? Wouldn't that, of course, like that's not a, that's not a huge you know, leap or inference to say, yeah, you'd have to see that there's some purpose in it. And this is what Paul seems to be saying, that he's finding some transcendent purpose in his suffering that makes him with integrity be able to say, I'm going through something horrible, literally. I'm locked in a jail. I can't leave, and people have to bring me the essentials for my survival on a daily basis. And yet somehow I rejoice in that reality because of a transcendent purpose that is connected to the suffering. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh. This is a weird sentence. We're going to look at it. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul seems to be saying, and you can decide if you agree, that there is some suffering that is worth it. That there is a type of perspective where you could honestly say, I am rejoicing, and that in this instance, Paul is saying that suffering is as an expression of love. There is a type of suffering in the world that you engage in as an expression of love and it has such a transcendent value attached to even the pain you're going through that you say, what I'm getting is worth it for what I'm having to go through. What I'm, Paul says, what I'm getting is actually so valuable to me that the price I'm having to pay in order to obtain it is, is, is I, I count it as nothing, I count it as low. And there's this shocking joy that comes from Paul's life because he's saying what, what's happening is, is worth it for me. The word, the ancient word that was associated with this type of suffering for love or suffering for something transcendent or greater was passion. We, we sometimes use the word passion in our context like it's an optional extra enthusiasm, like you have your work life and then you have your passion, like the thing that you really wanna do. Uh, and, and that's not what the ancient biblical definition of passion is. Passion is what are you willing to suffer for something to take place? 
What are you willing to suffer or endure in order to make something a, a, a reality? What are you willing to endure for the sake of love? That's why the passion of the Christ is not a movie about Jesus taking painting classes after work. Wouldn't that have been a way different film? I wonder how Mel would have done reputationally if that was it. The Passion of the Christ, and it's just Jesus and Bob Ross. Like, um, the Passion of the Christ is Christ's suffering. What he's willing to endure for what? Well, Hebrews said that he was willing to endure the cross, scorning its shame for something, for the joy set before him. What on earth is that? The scriptures seem to be indicating that it was for the joy of bringing you and I in his family. And also people from every tribe and tongue and nation. This staggering diversity brought into unity in the love of God is, is the gospel hope that for the, the, the joy of redeeming you and I set before him, Christ was willing to show the passion of the Christ, the passion of going to the cross to endure for our sake. N.T. Wright says that then becomes our identity as the church this is one of the central calls of the gospel. Listen to this. This is N.T. Wright, one of the preeminent New Testament scholars in the world today. The call of the gospel is for the church to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. So I went through enough stuff earlier that you know we're all suffering some, right? The question is, are we suffering in the relational expression of love? Or are we just dealing with hardship in the world and we're bummed about it because we're sort of basically selfish? Or is there a way to start to see the narrative of the world, the narrative of our lives through the lens of suffering love, that we're implementing the victory that Christ won on the cross by all that happened leading up to the cross, the victory that Jesus won to redeem you and I, to say, I know you by name, I bring you into the family, and we're implementing that through suffering love. That means we're getting out and through an awkward conversation or through radical generosity or through extending mercy and forgiveness or, or, or through working our hands to the bone for justice in our city, we're implementing the reality of God's love through our own suffering love. That's what N.T. Wright says is the purpose of the church. Now, when I first read this, I was, a, I was a little bit offended at the word lack in that sentence. I don't know if you noticed it when we went through the first time, but he says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What is he saying is lacking? Slow down, Paul. What are you trying to say is lacking in Christ's affliction? Because I remember something, Mr. Apostle, about how Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Not how he said, like, wait till Apostle Paul comes and rounds this out. Doesn't roll off the tongue the same way. He said, to telestai. It is finished, right? We know that was something that was a, a word that was used to say a, 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 a prisoner's debt has been paid they, or, or, or someone who's enslaved by debt. They've paid everything they have to pay. He cried out to Telestai, the debt is paid. It is finished. So what can Paul possibly mean by I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction? He's not saying that what Jesus did in his passion on the cross wasn't quite enough to redeem us. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying... Our vocations are united now. Christ was pouring out his passion in suffering love to redeem and to show the character of God. Our 
vocation as his sons and daughters through the gospel is that same pouring out of suffering love. This is, this is our vocation. So there's, until every, right, until every one of the seats is filled here and in the universe across the ages, right, until every person who doesn't look like us and is from a different place or doesn't feel included or doesn't feel welcomed in or is still locked in shame, right, until that until that glorious day when like the redemption is fully known and fully expressed, our vocation is to express the victory of God through suffering love. So he's saying there's still more suffering for love to do is essentially what he's saying in this text. There's still more suffering for love to do. Paul says he's rejoicing because of something he calls the mystery. And it shows up in Paul's letters a bunch. There's this thing called the mystery. And he's like, it wasn't super clear before, and it's getting clearer and clearer. And I'm, my whole life is wrapped up in it, and you're not going to believe it when I tell you. But it's literally worth me being locked in jail for. This mystery is everything. He said it's a mystery that has been known to some degree, but in his generation it was becoming as clear as it ever have. And, and, and this is Paul, a trained rabbi of Israel, saying God's redemption is spilling the banks of Israel, and no more will it ever be associated with a natural qualification. That's fancy language of saying it's not tied to any race or any family or any nation or any group of people who get to say, this is ours. It's spilling the banks of Israel, and it is going to every tribe and tongue and nation in the, in the, in the world. It is unity in diversity. It is Jew and Gentile, slave and free, Ro- Ro- Roman and Jewish. It is the whole world being brought together. Because of this love of God expressed in this redemption through Christ. He says the reason is anyone is qualified to be united to Christ because the basis is Christ. It is his life, his death, his resurrection that is our qualification. And so there's no natural qualification that you have to bring. No religious participation that you have to do to make yourself worthy. The mystery, as Paul expresses it just a sentence or two later, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I just want you for just a moment just to reflect on that. It's poetic language, but it's essentially saying that something can take place where the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus becomes a part of your story. It merges in with your life. And you, you become united to Jesus in such a way that his, his death on the cross, that it is finished thing counts for you. Every failure, every sin, every mistake, every uh, malformed identity or malformed desire that you may have that Christ over it speaks, it is finished and his redeeming death on the cross counts for you. It also means that his resurrection counts for you. That literally whatever has defined you on all the Fridays of your life does not have to be what defines you tomorrow. That whatever has defined you at all of your worst moments, that the resurrection life of Christ means that a new start is possible every day. That the grace of God is abounding, that it covers all of our sin, that you're united in his life, in his death, and his resurrection. His life means that now we have a blueprint for what a life of love looks like, uh, the life of God expressed in a human person, the person of Jesus. You want to know how to live like Christ? Well, we have four of his, of his biographies of, of what his life looks like. Here's the thing that gets me. 
Apostle Paul saying, it's worth it to me to be locked in this dungeon jail. It's worth it to me not to be able to go and get my necessities for myself. It's worth it to me to be radically uncomfortable, to be suffering, because I'm seeing the, the, the life of Christ expressed through me in you, like you being out there in this little fledgling community in this city in the Roman Empire it, it, it is inspiring to my heart enough to say that it's worth it for me to be in this place. Now, Paul's so united with their good that he's saying it's worth it to be. Now, where on earth did Paul get this from? Some of you will remember Paul's conversion story. He was a trained rabbi. He was moving up the ranks in Judaism. He was, move, he was going around from city to city trying to snuff out the movement of Jesus, and he was willing to even use violent means. So he stands by at, the, at the, the first martyr in the church, Stephen, as he's stoned to death. And then Paul's going to another city to arrest Christians and put them in jail. And he has an encounter with Jesus. And one of the most startling things that Jesus says to Paul on the road to Damascus is, why are you persecuting the church? Actually, that's not what he says, is it? He says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is saying, I'm so identified with my people that when you hurt them, you hurt me. When you persecute them, you persecute me. Now think about that union. Do you realize that Jesus sees himself as so wrapped up in your life that he is pained over the suffering that you go through? Do you have a God like that? Or do you have a God who's distant and mildly frustrated most of the time? When Paul first met Jesus, the shocking thing that he heard was, why are you persecuting me? Why are you, what you're doing to my people is persecuting me personally. And now Paul has embodied that reality of suffering love in himself. He's saying, my expression, the pain I'm going through is united to this church in Corinth, in Colossae, in, in Ephesus, in, in, in this growing movement around the world. I'm willing to express this same suffering love. Why? Christ in you, the hope of glory. The same exact spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you in this fluorescent middle school. I know you've got like a bunch of stuff to do for work this week, but the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you if you're united to Jesus. His life and death and resurrection is yours. This is your calling. This is your identity as his sons and daughters. You have a tremendous vocation in the world. I'll give you N.T. right one more time. God's secret plan for the rescue of the whole world to bring the treasure of his new age to the entire creation has now come to light in the news about the king. Paul is eager now that the secret is out to bring as many people as possible to share its benefits. If his death and resurrection, in his, if in his death and resurrection the king has already brought the new age into being, his own risen life is the source of the church's hope. His own risen life is the, is the source of the church's hope. Every individual Christian, in fact, has this hope within his or her own self. The reason is simple. Jesus the Messiah, the king, lives by his spirit within each one. He has already entered into the new state of glory, God's full intention for his human creatures because his own life is given to all his people. They can be confident in their hope of sharing this glory as well. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what have we said? Paul said, listen, I'm suffering, but I'm suffering for something that's transcendent. 
I'm suffering in the cause of love, and it's united to Christ, and it's worth it to me. At another place, he's like, literally, the suffering that I'm enduring is not even worth comparing with the glory that I have a share in. So whatever that is, if it's real, Paul's saying he's participating in it. He's saying he's suffering and it's worth it. Number two, he's saying the reason he's suffering is so that these people who he's writing to can experience their union with Christ, their full adoption into the family, that the passion of the Christ worked, that it was effective for redeeming you and me and bringing us all into this family and merging into, this, into the wake of this movement of love that's in Brooklyn in 2019 and we're participants in it, and so is the church down the street, that there's this beautiful unity and diversity going on. I'm suffering and it's worth it, and the reason is this mystery is it spilled the banks of Israel and everyone's brought in by the person of Christ. And then the third thing he says, the last thing for us today, and you'll love this, is that fullness and maturity are worth contending for. Isn't that a zinger of a third point? Pew, pew. So like, there are things in life that you're gonna go through and they're agonizing, but it's worth it. Lift your eyes and look at Christ and, 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 and you're gonna suffer, but it's worth it because we're expressing his love and you're totally united to Jesus and everything that's his is yours and you're brought in as sons and daughters and God on high looks at you and loves you with the same love he has for Jesus and that will never change. There's nothing you have to do to earn it. It's absolutely by the grace of God and guess what? It's gonna take your whole life to get it. What? I could, you could miss me on point three, please. Like, can I just have the fullness and maturity? Like, but he says no. That there is, this is a relational world. And that you can come, right, like, you can have this thing where a friendship begins on one day, or a marriage begins at one set of promises being exchanged, or the first moment a child is born, and yet there's a whole relational process by which intimacy is built and grows. And there's a maturity to a love after 10 years, or 20 years, or 15 years, or a lifetime that's not there. And what does that mean? That's so important, because our world wants to market us things like, what you get right now today is everything. And if you get this product, or you spend this thing, or you get this achievement, it's going to do it for you. It's finally the thing that's going to do it. And then you get it, and it doesn't do it, and you're disillusioned. And the scripture is saying, you can be really in union with God, and it's still sometimes not going to feel like it's doing it. Because fullness and maturity have to be contended for. And one of the ways Paul's contending for fullness and maturity is on his knees in a dank, dark prison cell with people having to bring him his essentials. But they're worth it because you can't come to the end of how good it can be. You can't possibly fathom the type of person you can become if you cultivate relational intimacy with God over the course of a lifetime. But you can often underestimate how long it's going to take. You're like, give me a month. Give me two inspiring sermons. Give me a podcast, right? We have podcast Christianity and Twitter activism, right? We're thinking, there I did. I retweeted that article. I fixed the problem. Did you see that SNL sketch? Thank you, Scott. You ended the problem. You retweeted that article, and there it is. We're not racist anymore. You did it, buddy. Thank you. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like we oversell the reality that like everything's gonna be mopped up in, in one fell swoop, right? Our, our podcast, like you get people to click or listen because you're like, this is the real secret. All the ones before weren't the real one. But it, if we're honest, fullness and maturity requires contending. It requires time. 
The specifics are in here if you want to see them. He's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that he might present everyone fully mature in Christ, right? That there's a beginning to that union, but there's also a maturity to it. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and those at Laodicea. Now, he's not contending hard so that they can receive the grace of God and be redeemed. No. He's contending hard through the grace of God that they might grow in maturity. He, this is the suffering love peace. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm you are in faith in Christ. Our world tells us. Basically, we get this message that maturity is dull. Like we celebrate youth so much and experience so much and the next trip and the next possession and and the next like, right, especially in America, we glorify the on the road, right? The Jack Kerouac, I'm tearing out across the desert on a search of my own experience. This is me out here leaving all constraints behind. Maturity is dull. But actually in the scriptural picture, and I want to tell you, if you test this by experience, maturity is joy because it means that you grow into a seasoned fullness that you have, you have allowed a transcendence to imprint on your soul so that you come to know more and more how to live in life, how to live in love, how to express goodness and truth and wisdom and care. Certain things that you can't learn in an instant, but you can learn in a lifetime. And right, we're either becoming that grumpy, old, per- selfish person that's totally revolving around themselves, or we're becoming that generous, old, kind-eyed, love is radiating out of her face and the wrinkles around her eyes because she's been living in this transcendent story of suffering for others and, and now there's a, there's a love that you ever been around someone like that just the calmness of maturity like I have nothing to prove and I can be here for you that's a gift I have nothing to prove and I can be here for you maturity is not dull it is joy Paul says there's stuff connected to it. He says, I'm gonna contend strenuously. And then he gives us a couple categories and I'm gonna mention them in just a blast and we'll hit them more as we go through the letter. He says, I contend in my energy. This one is especially for New Yorkers. You guys are like, life is exhausting. Rent is too high. My boss is crazy. You have no idea what it's like. And yet we have to, re- we have to like he's saying, I have to have help in my energy level to contend like this. You think Paul didn't have moments where he was in despair, locked in the jail? You think he didn't have moments where he thought this is absolutely impossible? And he's, yeah, I'm willing to contend even in the level of my energy for maturity and I have to have help from the Holy Spirit to do that. So one level that we have to contend for will we live out into the vision that God has laid out for our lives is our energy levels. What time am I getting up in the morning? What time am I going to sleep? How much television am I watching? How, how am I exercising? What's my diet like? Oh, do these things matter in discipleship? I promise you they absolutely do. You're a holistic being. And you can't just be like, I love God in my mind. That's all it took. No, your energy level tremendously relates to your life as a follower of Jesus or whether or not you're moving towards maturity or not. The second thing is intercession. And I love those two things juxtaposed. He's like, 
Like it, it requires your daily schedule being ordered in a certain way, and then it requires spiritual breakthrough that you can't do at all. Like, we've got to pray for one another. God, we need this back to be healed. Lord, we need this addiction to be broken. God, we need this mind to be repaired. God, we need this, this fractured marriage. To, there was an adultery. God, we need, we need them to come back together. We need miracles that we can't do on our own. It relates to our energy. It relates to intercession. He says, I want you to be encouraged in heart and unified. Right? There's a daily sort of reinforcement that must take place in your heart that you realize this is, the, this is my soul refreshed in the vision that God has for my life and that I'm in this with other people, that I can't do it alone. And the last thing that I'll mention is discernment. He says you're going to have many things that sound great on the outside. This is the first time Paul mentions what becomes a theme in this letter is that there's fine-sounding arguments, whatever those are, that the Colossians are hearing that threaten to draw them away from the truth of the heart of God. He's like, I want you to have discernment, to be able to know what those things are so you can leave them. You're gonna be marketed to with astonishing regularity. You're gonna hear in the milieu of your every, every day and every week conversation with your neighbors, there's a whole other, there are other systems of life at work and they're gonna sound really reasonable to you. How will you discern what the vision of the good life is? How will you de- determine whether something is from God or whether something isn't? You're gonna need discernment. So here's how we'll end. The big picture of this little chunk of this letter is that there are things worth suffering for. And that most of the time they're connected to something transcendent and most of the time they're connected to love. One of those things is union with Jesus. Living in it and expressing it to one another and to our neighbors and to our city. Not in pride, but in love. The last thing is that maturity takes time, but it's worth it. It takes contending, but it's worth it. So the questions I wanna put in your mind as we pray and as we're gonna come to the table and be nourished by this meal of grace as we're gonna worship, some of you will have things God's leading you to respond in specifically, but these are the questions. Are you suffering? It doesn't have to be some noble apostolic in a jail suffering, like what's going on that's causing you pain right now? Maybe you're not ready to, to, to write down in a letter what it's all about yet, but you can bring that suffering to God. You can say, can you help me understand this? Can you help me see this in some other light beyond just the pain that I'm in the middle of? If we have a, a belief system or a theology or a faith in God that can't deal with suffering, let me tell you, it will absolutely fall apart. Where are you suffering? You can bring it to God this morning even. The second question is, are you in union with Jesus? Like some of you, like, you've been circling around the idea of Christ. There's a lot of things you sort of buzz with, with agreement around. But, like, you have to ask the question personally, like, am I in? Like, am I in the, like, it's not like, do you have a certain set of mental furniture that agrees with God? It's, are you in relationship? Are you in this union? Have you taken his life and death and resurrection and said, this is, this is for me, I'm in? I'm in union with Jesus. If, if, that, if that's not true of you, that can begin, like, through, 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 a, through a prayer, like, today. I'm not selling you something simple, because the third thing is, is there as well, is are we willing to contend for maturity? This is something I'm asking our church, I'm asking me. 
Are we willing to grow into the people God has called us to be? If it requires adjusting our energy, adjusting our schedule, interceding, being united in our, in our hearts and minds, learning to discern, those are the three questions we're ending with. Where are you suffering? Bring it to God. Are you united with Jesus? Let's express that in faith and prayer this morning. And, and are you willing to contend for maturity? And I would say, ask the Holy Spirit where he's leading you in the next step of maturity in your life. Heavenly Father, I trust you. Love everyone in this room more than me. I trust you that you love all of us more than we could possibly fathom. I trust you, God, that you have a vision of our maturity that is joy, that is fullness, that is health and life, that is good, that, is, that can get through stuff, that can endure suffering. I pray you would carry us forward, but I don't know the specific thing in each person's life that they need, so I ask Holy Spirit even right now that you would just place the call of your spirit in each of our minds. Make it like a little whisper that we can discern. Take this step. Remember this, believe this. I pray you would speak, Holy Spirit, to your church right now. In Jesus' name, amen.